We are beginning chapter 19 tonight. Someone asked me back there for the title of the message tonight, <coughs> and I said it's called Luke 19 and whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see how far we get. Beginning of Luke 19 is the story of the little guy uh, that Randy Newman wrote about, um, Zacchaeus. Short people, remember that song? <laughs> Wasn't that Randy Newman? Oh, well. Um, Zacchaeus was this little dude, but he was a chief tax collector, according to verse 2. And he was there in the city of Jericho, which was kind of a sleazy town at that time, a place where a lot of those guys who ripped people off would, would keep a summer home there. And uh, so Zacchaeus was there, and he saw... He was very rich, so that means in terms of tax cheats go, he was really good at what he did, and people really hated him. You know, any Jewish person who would work for the Roman government in taxing their own people, and then they would jack up the rates so they could skim off the top, those people weren't very loved at all. And so he probably didn't have a lot of friends, but he was very well off. And he wanted to see Jesus, but because he was a little guy, he was of short stature, he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus because Jesus was going to pass that way. The sycamore trees in that area, the, lower, the bottom branch is up pretty high, so the guy had to probably work pretty hard just to get up there. But he got there, and here comes this crowd with Jesus in it. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up in the tree and he saw him and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now, it wasn't unusual for someone to stay at someone else's house. It was considered a, an honor to be able to host anyone. And so most of the houses had special quarters where they would take guests in whether strangers or dignitaries or whatever. But the people were scandalized that Jesus would take Zacchaeus up on, you know, on this offer. But Zacchaeus made haste, came down, and received him joyfully, happy to have probably anyone come to his house. But when they saw it, the people around, they all complained and said, "'He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner.'" Sort of ironic any time you would describe someone else as a sinner, as if you aren't. Um, but they were scandalized that Jesus would hang out with a guy like Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now, it's one thing for Zacchaeus to say, oh, Jesus, I love you. Come to my house. Let me feed you. Let me take care of you and host you. But Zacchaeus did the thing that really shows where someone's heart is, and he was going to give half of what he had to the poor. And then he was going to make restitution for all the people who he ripped off. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There used to be a bumper sticker that I saw once in a while. You remember the old bumper stickers that said, honk if you love Jesus? Um, there was another one that said, anyone can honk if you love Jesus, tithe. Now, I don't teach tithing as a New Testament requirement. However, I do believe that 
giving money to people who need it and giving money to the ministry of the church is way more an indication of where your heart is than if you wear jewelry, bumper stickers, or you talk a good game, or you teach a class, or you do so many of the other things that we do. Jesus' perspective was, okay, now I know this guy's heart is there. And he goes on to say, today salvation has come to this house. <laughs> You're, you really are saved because he also is a son of Abraham. He goes, not only was he a shyster and a tax guy, but he was Jewish, and he's given away half of what he has. This has to be salvation. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And again, the perspective, Jesus didn't come for righteous people. If you think you're better than most people, and if you are pointing your finger at others and worried about how messed up they are, if you feel like, you know, your main concern is all the sin in the world. Um, he didn't come for you. He came for people who realize they're a mess. So you might be ashamed of what you've done to your life. You might be ashamed of some of the things that you've done of which you're not proud. But those are the things that draws Jesus to your house. Those are the things that cause him to be especially attracted to you to call you out, to call you down, to, to want to have dinner with you, to want to be in fellowship with you. Where sin abounds, Paul said, grace much more abounds. And so there are some people who live in sin and don't want to change. Jesus has nothing for them. There are other people who want Jesus, but they don't really recognize that they need him. And he doesn't have anything for those people, and most of those people are really religious, and they think their religion is enough. But people who really come to understand they're sinners, and how do you show you understand that? You quit doing it. You quit doing stupid things. Someone, you know, the Bible says, show fruits of repentance. So you know that someone is repented, not if they say they're sorry, but if they start to change, they do things differently, keep doing the same things over and over, you really don't understand how you're messing yourself up. And so Jesus calls attention to the fact that I came to touch the lives of broken people. And Jesus spent most of his time with people who no one else cared about. And he still does that. He, Jesus I'm convinced that there are a whole lot of really religious places that Jesus wouldn't even bother showing up at. He would just not feel comfortable because he felt comfortable with the people he came to save. That's what he was here for, and that's what we are here for as well. When you get uncomfortable when you're around sinners, um, go back home and look in the mirror <laughs> and repent. Zacchaeus at least knew he was a sinner, and that's the, biggest, that's the biggest part. That's the greatest perception and understanding that you can possibly have, that you have something in common with every sinner in this world. As soon as you start to think you don't, and you start judging them and pointing the finger, um, then Jesus says, you know what? Call me when you realize you're just like everyone else. Until then, you're on your own. Make your own religion. Have your own church. Go ahead and judge other people all you want, but I'm not coming to your house till you realize 
how badly you have messed up. So then he tells the parable of the minas, the, the money, and he says, as they heard these things, so he's still kind of addressing sort of the same concern, but he was getting closer to Jerusalem. Remember, he was on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, and he had um, gone through the West Bank, had gone through Samaria, went, veered out of his way in order to go to Jericho, and now he headed for Jerusalem. And uh, so he told the story. He was getting close. But he told the story because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They figured, okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to take over. We're in business. So he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So this guy was very powerful. He already had a lot of territory, but he was, there was another city that was his that he needed to go take possession of. And so he went to take care of it. He got 10 of his servants and gave them power of attorney. He gave each of them 10 minas and said to them, do business until I come. A mina was just a, a piece of money. It's inconsequential, different times. Uh, you know, each, each mina was worth like, well, 10 mina was worth a little over a year's wage for a worker. And so he called them in and he gave them these instructions, verse 13, do business until I come. He said, here's the money, do business with it, invest it. But his citizens hated him. A bunch of the people around didn't like him, and they said, we're not going to have you reign over us. He'll deal with them later. He has business to attend to. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these ten servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And so he had these servants... Um, it doesn't say really how many of them, but he, we know at least three of them got 10 mina each. And so he called them in, and he asked one guy, you know, well, how'd you do? How'd you profit? And he said, uh, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas, so 1,000% on your investment, not bad. And he said to him, or either that or 100%, it's, it's kind of... Uh, it's not really clear whether each mina earned 10 or whether 10 mina earned 10. But he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over 10 cities. So he gave him a huge um, opportunity of responsibility because of how he had successfully invested an amount that was large for the servant but an amount that wasn't that large for the master. And then he said to another one, Okay, uh, how'd you do? He said, well, I've earned five minas for your mina. And he said, you're also, you're over five cities. And then the other guy came and said, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you didn't deposit, you reap what you didn't sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere or serious guy, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I did not sow. I'm a tough businessman. 
So why didn't you at least stick the money in the bank so that when I came back, I would have at least got a little interest out of it? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even that he has will be taken away from him. Oh, and by the way, bring me those enemies of mine who didn't want me to reign over them and slay them before me. So he uh, had these servants. They got money entrusted to them. Again, the amount of money doesn't matter. Some people make a big deal of, well, it says there were 10 servants. It said there were 10 mina. Was it one mina each? Was it, you know, only three are mentioned in the Doesn't matter. The point is, some people took what the master had given them and did a lot with it. And others did a little less, got a little less reward. And this one guy in particular just sat on it and did nothing. The lesson certainly that Jesus was trying to um, impress upon us. Because remember when he started out, it said he told this because some people thought the kingdom was coming right away. So the point of the parable is where Jesus says to them, do business until I come. Or as the King James says, occupy um, until I come. And so the tendency when you think that the Lord is coming at any time, and he's going to go into that a lot in our teachings later on, is just, well, what's the hurry? Why do we need to do anything? But Jesus wanted us to understand that what he entrusts to us is something that we are to use. And that the fact that we don't know when he's going to return, but he hasn't returned yet. And if we look at a couple thousand years of history and he still hasn't returned, we can at least assume that we are going to have certain opportunities to use what God has given us. So the challenge is, what are you doing with your life? What are we doing with the opportunities that God gives us, with the talent that he gives us, with the money that he entrusts to us? And he says, hey, if you are doing business well, if you are investing that which I have given you, I'm going to give you a lot more, and I'll give you a lot more responsibility. But if you blow what you have, then I'll even take that away from you. A lot of times when we aren't faithful with what God has entrusted to us, we end up losing it, and we stand there acting like, what happened? But it's clear he's not going to continue to entrust opportunities to people who don't use the opportunities that they have. And that's why it's so important for us every once in a while to do an inventory of what has God entrusted to me. Make a list of all your assets and all of your potential and all of your gifts and all that kind of stuff and ask yourself, am I investing it? Now, sometimes that just might mean a pure financial investment in order to create greater wealth, in order to give you greater um, flexibility to serve the Lord or to give you more opportunities to give to the Lord's work. Um, there are a lot of ways that you can do business. However, sitting around and expecting God to take care of you when you aren't doing business, when you aren't using what you have, isn't the way for it to happen. Taking what God has given you and wrapping it up in a napkin and just hoping to preserve it um, 
You know, in investments, if you don't invest some, your principal ends up dropping generally because of inflation and other factors. If you just sit on what you have, you won't even keep up with inflation. And so what he is suggesting is that's not the thing to do. So for all of us, the challenge is, okay, what has God given us and how are we using it for him? How are we using it to serve him? I, Bob Berryhill over here is a great example. He had an opportunity to be one of the first rock stars in the safaris. And frankly, some of his songs that he wrote weren't great poetry. Um, Surfer Joe, Wipeout, and things like that. But it was a silly band that made people feel good. But all these years later, he and his family are serving the Lord, worshiping God, and that's taking something that it would be easy to come to the Lord and just go, well, God sure can't use that. Oh, yes, he can. Anything that he has given you, he can use. I would suggest that most people who, for instance, play guitar, probably wasted a ton of time to get really proficient on the guitar. But then God says, okay, you frittered away your whole youth sitting in your bedroom trying to copy Led Zeppelin tunes, but now I'm going to use it. Don't think that anything that you've ever done, even the things that seemed like a complete waste, don't think that any of those were wasted. The story's not over yet. And whatever it is that we have, our master says, use it or lose it. And that was his lesson to these guys, and it's something that, that we should take seriously as well, I think. Because we don't know how long before Jesus is going to come back. He could come back at any time, but he may choose to, to be patient, as he has been so far, and wait. So whatever we have, we want to use it for him, and we want to be as fully invested as we possibly can. And investment always involves risk. And sometimes it doesn't work out so well. But I, I'd rather answer to my master and tell him, man, I did the best I could, and I laid it all out there, and I left it all on the mat, and I don't have a lot of minas to present back to you. And I think he would say, at least you tried. I'd rather have you do that than to just wrap your, your assets up in a napkin and hope that they don't fritter away too much. Now Jesus comes to Jerusalem and it says, after he had said this, he went on ahead and went up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples. Now the Mount of Olives is just on the east side of Jerusalem, a little hill. It's not really a mountain. Um, behind the Mount of Olives is, are the cities of Bethany and Bethphage. So that's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. So he came there, came to the Mount of Olives, and he told some of his disciples, go into the village, and, and uh, you're gonna, as you enter, you're going to find a little, a little donkey there, and nobody has ever sat on it. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Could be just a miracle. Could be that Jesus had made prior arrangements with somebody. Um, neither one of those would be the point. They went, and it was just like he said. They found the colt and loosed it. 
The owners said, why are you loosing the colt? They said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought the little colt to Jesus. They threw their own clothes on the colt. They set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And as you look at the other gospels, as you look at Matthew, it talks about the fact that they took uh, branches and laid them out there as well and waved them. And that's where we get the notion of Palm Sunday, which is when this happened on the Sunday prior to Jesus dying. And as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, when you're on the Mount of Olives, there's a little road that heads down moving toward the east gate of Jerusalem. And so he was heading down that path, which you can still go walk on today through the Mount of Olives and and enter into Jerusalem. As he was coming, the multitudes began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And they said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were quoting Psalm 118. Um, By the way, this triumphal entry on a donkey was prophesied over in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Behold your king coming to you riding on a a donkey, the the colt of a donkey. Um, And so... It was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 as well as Psalm 118. When the Pharisees heard them saying this, and if you look at Psalm 118, there's a more detailed section there including Hosanna to the highest, which Matthew points out they said as well, which means save now. So when they heard this, they were proclaiming him as the Messiah. The Pharisees got really mad and said, Teacher, tell those guys to shut up. And Jesus answered and said to him, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And so he just said, look, it's time for me to be proclaimed as the Messiah, even though I'm going to be rejected. All these people are are doing is just saying the obvious and fulfilling scripture. I could just as easily make rocks sing praises to me. And so really, whenever we tell people about Jesus, we're just substitutes for a bunch of rocks. It's nothing, it doesn't make us anything. We're just stating what, what um, all of nature understands to be the case. Jesus, as he got near, he saw the city and he wept over it. If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, he goes, man, Jerusalem, here I am, I'm coming in, and people are declaring me to be the Messiah. This is your day. This is your opportunity. Daniel chapter 9 had made prophecy concerning when the Messiah would come. And actually, um, well, we can turn over there. Because I think this is probably what he was referring to when he said, this is your day, Um By a lot of people's chronology, they believe that Daniel actually prophesied the exact day that this triumphal entry took place. And um, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, made a pretty incredible prophecy. Verse 30 or no, verse 20. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, 
While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, reached out the time of the evening sacrifice, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy sevens, literally, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So he says, there are seven, 490 something before this is all brought to a culmination. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and 62 weeks or 69 weeks altogether. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after those 62 weeks plus seven, so after 69 sevens, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined, and so on. The, uh, the day when the declaration of Artaxerxes went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, um, we know what day that was, and accounting for the different calendars and everything, if you count... 483 years, which is 490 minus 7, or 69 years, you end up with 173,880 days. And according to Sir Robert Anderson, who was a mathematician, and he did all the legwork and the figuring, he says that the, the day that Artaxerxes made that declaration, and when you count 173,880 days later, you will come upon the very day that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem. Now, I've seen people who have written critical articles questioning Sir Robert Anderson's math, and it's kind of funny because what they say is, actually, he could be as many as 14 days off in his figuring. I don't care. If he's that close that the Messiah would come and, and then be cut off, and then, of course, there are still you know, one, one uh, seven-year period left, if he's correct, and that would be the tribulation period when God again deals with Israel. At any rate, the point is, he, Daniel, well, God, through Daniel, it looks like pinpointed this exact precise time when the king would be offered. And so... Jesus is weeping and saying, man, if you had known this was your day, but days are going to come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't realize who was visiting you. You ended up rejecting him. And so he's weeping. He's not gloating. He's just saying, oh man, what could have happened? 
course, that brings up the question, what would have happened had the Jews just accepted him? A handful of people did. What would have happened if everyone had? We don't know. Jesus still would have had to have died, but the truth is, and as John points out in John chapter 1, he was rejected. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So that's where we come in. We get the shot at it, and um, the whole church age would seem to be a parenthesis. Now, as he's prophesying about Jerusalem being destroyed, um, there could be a double fulfillment here. It's kind of clear that a part of what he's referring to is the day in 70 AD when Titus and the Romans came into Jerusalem, wiped it out, toppled over all the stones of the temple, burned it all down. We're going to see later in the Olivet Discourse that Jesus refers to some of these events too. Um, this is why some people who call themselves preterists, either full preterists or partial preterists, believe that what we would consider biblical prophecy, well, what was clearly prophecy at the time it was written, preterists would say it was pretty much fulfilled in 70 AD. You can see certain things that seem to have been fulfilled in 70 AD, and yet part of the things that were predicted were definitely not you know, fulfilled in 70 AD, as we'll see as we get more into some of these final prophecies. But at any rate, this was primarily looking at that day, um, I would say, and perhaps extending beyond that and just mourning about the fact that what could have been and what wasn't. I, I wonder what Jesus sees when he looks at all of our lives and he thinks, if you had only known this was your day, if you had only known who was visiting you, and it, it makes me want to get everything that God has for me every day. I've wasted plenty of days in my life. I've wasted years of my life. But today is the day I can deal with. And so I want today to grab a hold of everything that the Lord has for me, and then tomorrow I'd like to do the same thing. It doesn't mean that I'm just manic about doing as much as I can. I just want to do what God wants me to do. If God wants me to sit around for a day, that's cool too. And sometimes he tells me to do that, um, and usually I disobey. But, um, you know, he, he looks at potential. I believe in God's sovereignty, and yet I also believe in human responsibility. And so I'm not a real good Calvinist or a real good Arminian, but I know this, um, there are tragedies that happen every day when there is something that could have been and because we don't do what we could do, um, we miss out. And I think that the Lord still looks at us many times and just weeps over what, what could be. Um, and yet, he has a plan that supersedes all that and we end up where we're supposed to be in the final analysis. Then, the end of chapter 19, Jesus came and saw people buying and selling, ripping people off in the outer court of the temple, and he drove them out and said, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Um, this is called the cleansing of the temple. He had done this once before, a couple years earlier, now again, 
these shysters are back. And what they would do, they would take advantage of people. And so they were in cahoots with the crooked priests. And someone would bring an animal and say, here's my animal to sacrifice. And they would say, oh, this animal isn't perfect enough. But we have certified animals for sale out in the outer court. You can go get one of those. And basically, they were just taking advantage of people. Um, I don't think necessarily that Jesus today would go into a church Christian bookstore and tip the tables over. Um, when I see some of the junk they sell, I'm tempted. But uh, in fact, an awful lot of the Christian merchandising I'm kind of concerned about. But, but that's not what it was about. It was, it was more about just ripping people off. And I think people who take advantage of people and manipulate them in order to get money from them and things like that, uh, someday their table will be turned over. Jesus is just disgusted by those who take advantage of the weak, who have no other options. Now it happened in chapter 20 that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple, during that last few days, he would probably go into the temple and teach and come back out and maybe stay at the Mount of Olives. And um, so one of those days while he was teaching, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted him. They were trying to catch him, but people liked him. People tend to like a guy that keeps healing people. And so, but they spoke to him and they said, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? And who is he who gave you this authority? They're trying to bait him and get him to claim to be God because they knew that he was he was, he was believing himself to be God and that the followers believed he was God and the Messiah. But if they could get him to come right out and say it really clearly, they might have grounds to, to, to hurt him. So, but he answered them and said, okay, I'll ask you a question and you answer me first. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? See, John the Baptist was really popular still. He became more popular as he became a martyr. So he knew these guys would not want to take a stand. So he said, okay, you're asking me a question, I'll ask you one. What do you think about John the Baptist, from God or from men? Obviously, they knew John the Baptist had pointed at Jesus and said, the one that's coming after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, even though he was younger than John the Baptist, and again saying, I'm not worthy to untie his laces. So he backed them into a corner, if Jesus answered frankly, the Romans might have been upset with him. But if they answered frankly, the people would have been upset with them. And so he said, so tell me, and then I'll answer your question. And uh, so uh, they answered that they didn't know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He didn't say, I don't know how I'm doing it. He just said, you haven't answered my question, so I'm not going to answer yours. I love the fact that Jesus never felt like he needed to get baited into defending himself or arguing or that he had to answer every question. So often we get into a discussion with people and they ask some tough question. And it's usually a trick question that doesn't have an easy answer. Don't even waste your time trying to answer questions that aren't sincere questions. If they're only academic questions or just an exercise in argumentation, don't answer. Just ignore it. Change the subject. When you're talking to somebody who is a devout um, follower of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, for instance, the Mormons, 
I could talk to them for hours about the fact that DNA evidence has disproven what the Book of Mormon says. I could pull out all the changes in the Book of Mormon. I could show them where Brigham Young said that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers. I could, you know, but that's not what they need. They need to be confronted with the fact that Jesus Christ is God, that he died and rose from the dead, and that it's only faith in him that will give you eternal life. In fact, that's what everyone needs to hear. Nobody needs to hear your explanation of, oh, well, what about the dinosaurs? Or how old is the universe? Or what about evolution? None of that stuff is affecting your life at all. But what you do with Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world. And that's why it's great. With about 10 minutes of training, you can be completely qualified to talk to anyone about that which matters most in their life. And I just wouldn't get baited with all the other questions. No one ever yet got argued into the kingdom of God. So it's fun to think about these things. I enjoy talking with atheists and exploring some of their ideas and things like that. But ultimately, Jesus generally didn't get baited by his enemies to get sucked into long, convoluted arguments. Um, he changed the subject. He felt fine with that. See, if you're secure, you don't have to defend yourself all the time. Jesus didn't really, he wasn't that concerned whether fans liked him or not. He didn't really worry about building up a following. In fact, by the end, he had lost most of his following, and it didn't matter to him because he knew what he was called to do. The more we have our eyes on people and thinking that you know, we owe them something. No, we owe God. We simply work for him. And we don't need to get baited and sucked off into all sorts of crazy arguments uh, that are all just a setup. So then he tells the parable of the wicked vine dressers. He told this parable, a man planted a vineyard and he leased it to some vine dressers. That was pretty usual where you would have sharecroppers come and and farm the land in exchange for a percentage of their crops. And he went into a far country for a long time. At, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the wine dressers so they could give him the percentage of the proceeds. But they just beat the servant up and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. They beat him up too and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, man, what am I going to do? I'm going to send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves and said, man, this is the heir. Let's kill him and we'll probably inherit this field. How stupid is that? Yeah, right. But it is stupid. And so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, no way. And then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? And again, he's quoting Psalm 118, same as he was in chapter 19, but it was an earlier part of it. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. 
And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So in a nutshell, the story is, this guy has a vineyard, he owns it, he's letting people use it. Sends a servant to collect, they beat him up, send him away. Another servant comes, they beat him up, throw him away. Third servant comes, they beat him up and throw him away. Now those are talking about the prophets that God had repeatedly sent to Israel, and they were consistently beaten up by the people. And so then he said his own son, his beloved son, came, and they killed him. Because Jesus knew that's what they were planning on doing for him. So in this, he's claiming to be the only beloved son of God, claiming divinity for himself. He's also telling them before they had gone public with it that he knew they were going to kill him. And then he ties it in with, with um, the, pro- the prophecy in Psalm 118 that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So they, he knew they were rejecting him. And they hated it because it was just a story about a vineyard and a stone. And it's like they can't bust him for it. But everybody there, as he told the story, they were turning to look at the Pharisees. Like, do you guys realize? I think he's talking about you. And he was. And they wanted to get rid of him. But they were such people pleasers that, you know, they, they were afraid to do something. But they kept plotting. Cowards, really. But Jesus was letting them know that this was all God's plan. This was what was happening, and Jesus was fully aware of what they were doing. So then they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So they bugged him whenever he spoke. They would find out what he said and tried to find something to use against him. And those guys asked him, saying, Teacher, Notice how they didn't want to hang around and ask questions anymore because they were the brunt of his stories. So they sent other people to pretend like they were with him and said, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and you don't show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. They were buttering him up. People who butter you up, Proverbs always warns us, be really careful when people flatter you, when they butter you up too much. The other The other shoe is going to drop. So they said, so is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? See, they knew if he said, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then they would say, look, he's loyal to Rome and turn the Jews against him. But if he said, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he would, uh, they would tell the Romans, this guy's telling people not to pay their taxes. So they thought they had him pretty good. And he said, why do you test me? Show me a denarius, a Roman coin. Whose picture and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they couldn't catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. It was a brilliant answer. He goes, If the money's Caesar's, give it to Caesar. Who cares? But what are you doing with your heart? What are you doing with your life? That's the real question. You give that to God because that belongs to God. And so then the Sadducees came and wanted to argue about resurrection. Sadducees were a party that were basically anti-supernatural, and they didn't believe even in an afterlife at all. They didn't believe in a resurrection. So they came to him with this whole story 
a fictitious story, and they said there were these seven brothers, and one of them married this girl, and then he died. And in those days, often, if, a, if your brother died and didn't have kids, then the next brother would marry his wife in order to have a kid and name the first one after him. So they were aware of this, and so they go, so guy number one dies, so brother number two marries her, and then he dies. Brother number three, he dies. After about five brothers died from eating this woman's cooking, I'm, <laughs> I'm surprised somebody didn't get suspicious, but at any rate... All, you know, all seven of them died, and there she was, and they're like, so who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? What a dumb thing. But Jesus said, look, it's in this age that people marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead don't marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. He goes, basically, when people are in heaven, they're not going to go through marriage and the norm, those kinds of things. Those are things for this life. You can't even understand that heaven is just such an incredible place where that intimacy that God places in marriage is just there with everyone all the time, the way the angels are. You don't need a special relationship because every relationship will be special. Now, people always say, but will I know my spouse in heaven? Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to be stupider in heaven than you are now. <laughs> you'll know your kids. You'll know everyone. You'll, you know. But the thing is, on your best day with your spouse, your relationship with everyone will be way better than that. So I'm sure you'll have special memories, and it'll be a blessing to be there together and to see our loved ones, but at the same time, it's going to be a lot different. And that's what Jesus was saying. But then he said, oh, by the way, Moses showed in the burning bush passage, he shows that, that, uh, you know, that Moses wrote uh, Genesis, that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he said, oh, I want to ask you guys something. You believe in Moses, right? Well, Moses talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead at the time. So if there's no resurrection, is God the God of the dead or of the living? Great question. And some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you got a point. <laughs> and after that, they just quit trying to trick him. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Now, Jesus further drives this point home when he says, Oh, by the way, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? Because they believe that someone who is a descendant of David would be the Messiah. And so, but they said, David himself said in the book of Psalms, this is in Psalm 110, right at the beginning of the Psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So David calls the Messiah Lord. How is he then his son? He goes, figure this out. If he's a descendant of David, how could he be David's Lord? An, an indication, obviously, of the preexistence of the Messiah back long before he would be born on the earth. So another something for them to chew on. And then where everybody could hear, he said to the disciples, these guys, 
Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Basically says, right in front of these guys, hey you guys, look out for religious people. Look out for people who have all the really spiritual language all the time, who are calling attention to themselves all the time with all the blessy, blessed, sweet language that's just like, what planet are you from? Why do you talk like this? Um, he goes, people like that love attention, but it's phony. And phonies will be judged. Christianity is not something you pretend at. A relationship with God isn't something that you fake. And the greatest sign of a, of a phony is they judge other people because they think other people are worse than they are. But here, Jesus is just saying in general, look out for people who talk a good game religiously. I'd rather deal with somebody who talks like a normal person and even says things that might be sort of offensive, but, they, but they're sincere. Then, you know, I've met sometimes new Christians and they use words that I just go, oh, nobody's trained you yet that we don't talk like that. Um, I remember one time I just led a guy to the Lord, and the next day he came to me, and he, and he, said, um, he, he, said, uh, um, he said to me, God is just showing me how much my life has been full of, uh, and he used the, uh, the word that they paved the corrals with, and I'm like, what do I say? He's right. <laughs> you know? Then the people who are all trained and they, they would use other euphemisms for everything and when maybe they're dying inside, they're coming up to people and just going, oh, praise God, everything's wonderful, everything's great, oh, I love you, brother. Jesus looked at those, those kind of people, the people with the fake God talk, and he just goes, you guys, are, you guys are bad news. Stay away from people like that. They're actually gonna be judged for their phoniness. Um, there's plenty that God could judge me about, but I really try hard to not give him a reason that I'm a phony. I mean, I would rather have everybody I know say that I'm crude and offensive rather than to have people look at me and go, I don't think you really mean this stuff. I think you're fake. So important that we tell the truth in a way that it sounds like truth. Uh, one of my favorite A.W. Tozer quotes is, he said, people who tell a lie and make it sound like truth are dangerous. But even more dangerous are people who tell the truth and make it sound like a lie. Um, there are some people who just the way they talk about God, it just sounds phony. And usually that's an indication maybe it is. We need to be real. That's what Jesus called us to. Now he was coming into the temple and he saw rich people putting their money into the offering plate and they made a big production of it. And he saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites, just a couple pennies. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all these rich guys. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. 
It's interesting that he called attention to this widow and said it was a good thing that she was giving everything that she had to a corrupt temple system. See, offering isn't about whether or not the people that you give it to are even deserving. A lot of times people feel like, I want to know every penny that the church spends so I know whether or not I want to give them my money. Well, Jesus seemed to be okay with this widow giving a couple of her pennies, which was all she had, into a really corrupt temple system. Because giving is not about who gets the money. Giving is about the act of letting go of it and in your heart desiring to give it to the Lord. And so he calls attention to her. Now, she gave much more than 10%. These other guys were probably giving 10% and making a big deal about it because their 10% was a lot of money. But if people are giving 10% and they could give a lot more, they're probably ripping off God, probably not doing what God would want them to do. Other people, they don't give much, but what they give means a lot to them. And again, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Jesus pointed this lady out and said, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about giving. So the ushers will come forward. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Then uh, as they were looking at the temple, they said, man, look how beautiful it is. And the temple was amazing. These huge stones that were, some of them almost as big as this wall here. And they got them in there and built it and they were admiring it because it was coming from people's donations. So he's talking about offering, and they're like going, isn't it great? They're giving money, and look at this gorgeous building. And uh, he goes, well, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, giving isn't about the building. Yeah, they were using it to build the building, nothing wrong with that. But that's not what we are attached to, and that's not what we're trying to accomplish. Giving is for the sake of the people who give. It's a spiritual discipline. It's something that is healthy for us. And so he goes, the temple, it'll be destroyed, and this little lady's still going to be rewarded because of what she gave. And then he starts talking about prophecy because they were saying, well, when, when's this all going to get wrapped up? And he said in verse 8, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. He said, a lot of people are going to claim to be Messiah, don't buy it. And after Jesus, there were lots of so-called Messiahs around Israel. Um, Some of the sources, even someone as, as ancient as Josephus talks about over 60 guys that he knew of that claimed to be Messiah. We've had a bunch more since. He said, no, this is going to take a while. Don't just go jump at the first Messiah that comes along. When you hear of wars and commotions, don't be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. There's going to be a delay. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines and pestilence and fearful sights and great signs from heaven. All kinds of bad stuff's going to happen before Jesus returns. But before all these things, they're going to lay hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it'll turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. You'll have an opportunity to um, 
And the word there for testimony is martyros, that we get our word martyr from. Therefore, settle it in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You're going to go through tough times, but I'll be there with you. And he says you're going to be betrayed, even parents, brothers, relatives, friends. Some of them will put you to death. Sad sometimes when your family turns on you, but Jesus said, I'm with you. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. Now, I'm concerned about that scripture. (laughs) One time when I was talking to my son Danny when he was about two or three, he was crying and I shared with him the scripture about that all, God catches all your tears and keeps them in a bottle. And I said, God sees every tear that you shed. And he said, Dad, he's looking at me and he looked at my head and he goes, Dad, does God have your hair in a bottle? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, that, how his, head went, his mind went there, but, um, but this was just a prophecy that they had. What it meant was nothing that's not supposed to happen to you isn't going to happen to you. By your patience, hang in there, and you'll possess your souls, your suke, your life. He said, you'll own who you are and what you need to do if you hang in there. And so then he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Let those who are in Judea, which was around Jerusalem there, flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Don't let those in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." Probably most of this is a reference to what happened in A.D. 70. Interestingly enough, with him saying, not a hair of your head will be lost, the Christians escaped Jerusalem, and there was no record of any Christian being killed in 70 A.D. when when the Romans came in to conquer Jerusalem. Um, And so they were taking heed to this command, this suggestion that Jesus made. But this is also a foreshadowing of the day in the future when once again this major invasion happens. This seems to be localized in Jerusalem. As we read on, it seems like it's extended more into the rest of the world. So this, is, this happened in 70 AD, but not completely as we go on. And uh, the times of the Gentiles, from 70 AD on, Gentiles have had control of the major portions of Jerusalem. And even today, the holiest site in Jerusalem, the site of the original temple most likely, has the Dome, of the, Rock, uh, the Dome of the Rock there, or the Mosque of Omar as some people call it. And, and Gentiles have been in control of the place ever since then, until the time when Jesus returns. So we are now in the time of the Gentiles. It'll be trampled underfoot until that time is over, um, which will bring on the judgment the coming of the Lord. And he says, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars. And on the earth, the stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. 
Now, this isn't talking about 70 AD. All of a sudden, he's escalated out into a deeper discussion. Men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, not just on Jerusalem, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, Look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. He says it's going to get worse. It's going to affect the whole world. It'll involve supernatural judgments and everything else. And when we study the book of Revelation, we'll see in detail the prophecies concerning this time of judgment. So he's extending this from 70 AD into the time when the whole world will be rocked before the Son of Man ultimately comes and in clouds with power and great glory. This isn't the rapture. This is the second coming. This is when Jesus comes back, sets foot on the Mount of Olives. It splits in half, and, and he wipes out the armies of the Antichrist. But when you see it begin to happen, when you begin to see the stage set, which I believe you know, we can see more today than ever before. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I know back in the 80s, back in the 70s, I didn't think it could be another 10 years. And, you know, now it's been another 30. I'm not discouraged at all. We are 30 years closer than we were then. And so I see this beginning to happen. I don't know when it's going to end, but I'm keeping my eyes on the heavens, looking up because our redemption draws nigh. As Titus, as Paul said to Titus in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says, let me tell you a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Fig tree was typically a symbol of Israel. He says, when, they're, when they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. I don't know what he means by this generation will not pass away before everything is fulfilled. Um, a lot of people were convinced that when Israel became a nation, you take the date, you figure a generation is 40 years, you subtract seven years for the tribulation period, and you came to 1981. So a whole lot of people figured he was coming in 81. Then people thought maybe it's post-trib, so maybe it's 88. Nobody knows the day or the hour. So forget your math, relax. He's going to come when he wants to come. This generation could just refer to the people who see this stuff start to happen. It could refer to the nation of Israel coming back into the land and being established. Um, that is sometimes called a generation. So at any rate, it's coming. It's coming soon. And, um, and so, you know, watch. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down that you get, that's a word that they used after, a, after they totally pigged out at a banquet, and they were like, oh, it was a medical term, actually, and I won't go into great details specifically about it, because then I would offend you for sure, but with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. He goes, don't just get so caught up in, 
in this world that you're surprised, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now notice in verse 35, this is to everyone who dwells on the face of the whole earth. That's not 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. And there are people who will be standing before the Son of God, escaping the judgment that he's talking about. And I believe that I take this as an indication that there's a way to avoid the tribulation, and that is to be raptured before it happens. I know, I'm sure there are people in a room this size who take a different view. That's fine. This, to me, is a pretty strong indication of, of the fact that he was saying there is a way to avoid all that. He, talks, he always talks about the people who will be in the tribulation as they, and when he talks about you, he's talking about being rescued. So that's the way I take it. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but at night, he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And so then as we get into chapter 22, um, we see him celebrate the Passover. And that event that we will look at next week is what we celebrate tonight as we partake together in communion. Jesus' life and his teachings had come to this point, and now he was ready to do what we needed the most to give his life for us. And so uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for all of your teaching. You prepared us for what we would face. And you let us know that what the world is coming to ultimately. Lord, we want to be faithful servants who are looking up, expecting our redemption to draw nigh. And if there's a way for us to escape all this, we want to know you and be ready. In the meantime, help us to be faithful. Help us to be those kinds of servants who use everything that you give us and invest in people, invest in life, invest in your work, use our talents for your glory and blessing. And Lord, we look forward to your return. And tonight we celebrate what you did for us that makes it possible for us to look forward to your return. And that is your death on our behalf. And so, Lord, bring our hearts to the point. Lead us to Calvary. Help us tonight to be very aware of what it cost you for us to be here and to someday be there with you. Because that gift that's represented by this bread and wine speaks to us of how much you love us. We are so sorry when we whine around like you don't love us enough when you proved your love to us on Calvary. Thank you for loving us. No one else ever could if they knew us like you do, but you do and you know us best. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.